Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to continue on in our series. We've been looking at uh, verses 18 through 24, around in there, where the writer to the Hebrews wrote this. He said, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And then the writer contrasts these two mountains signifying two covenants, uh, two relationships, two approaches to God. There was Mount Sinai and the mediator of a covenant. The, the Mount Sinai was, was, uh, represented the old covenant. The mediator was Moses, the lawgiver. And he says, we have not come to Mount Zion that, uh, where there was were, were thunder, lightning, the voice, and the people trembled in fear so much that even Moses, who spoke to God face to face, said, I am terrified. He said, but you have come to Mount Zion. And he begins to picture for us what this entrance into this new covenant looks like. We've been talking about what really happens when we gather together in worship. We've come to Mount Zion. It's that picture of Jerusalem. But he said it's a heavenly Mount Zion. It's not a mountain that can be touched. And so this picture of this mountain that God rules and reigns from. Now we've looked at how Mount Zion was another name for Jerusalem or the original city Salem that was ruled by a king priest, Melchizedek, which represented a whole other priesthood. And we, So we've been looking at all of this and we've been talking the last few weeks about the different components to Mount Zion and what really happens when we worship. So let's read through this passage. We're going to begin in verse 22. Uh, We're not going to cover 18 through 21. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's you and I. I love how one translation said they're already enrolled in heaven. We're already enrolled. Our name is in. He says, uh, he goes on, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the saints of righteous men made perfect. It's what the the early church fathers referred to and the, the Apostles' Creed referred to as the communion of the saints. That partnership of the saints who have gone ahead of us, those who are already in heaven and those who are on earth. And there's a communion, there is a a co-laboring, that a partnership that they are still invested in. Matter of fact, those who have died, Jack Cox is more in tune with what God is doing this morning than he was last Sunday, and he's more invested in God's purposes this Sunday than when he was alive on planet earth last Sunday. Because now he's seen, he's been around the throne, and he is, he is cheering for the purposes of God. That's why it says that the martyrs are under the altar in Revelation, crying out, Lord, how long? They're still praying, they're still invested in God's purposes on the earth. And so that's what that's referring to. It's a reference to the great cloud of witnesses earlier in this passage. And then he says this. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We looked at that last week, how Jesus is our mediator. That word mediator is a unique word. It has to do with him being the go-between. But it was also a Greek word that was used 
for translators, someone that was going to translate your language. I, I, I love to preach with translators. And uh, so when you're preaching with a translator, you say something and then they translate it for you. And I, sometimes I wonder, are they really saying what I said? You know, you just never know. And uh, I remember the first time Christopher and I went to Columbia, I was preaching and Christopher was so frustrated, he got up and left. And afterwards, we went into ministry time, and man, God moved. I mean, people were healed. There was one guy, he had an enlarged heart, was taking 70 pills a day. His, he said fire went through his chest. He went back to the doctor. Brand new heart's been off those pills for years now. Just a lot of dramatic healings. But Christopher seemed frustrated. So I said, after I said, what was the deal? He said, the translator was so bad, he said, nobody understood a word you said. He said, seriously, the only thing they understood was your text because they could read it for themselves. He said, everything, that he, the guy was mistranslating everything. And I thought, well, that just goes to show you God doesn't need us, does he? <laughs> I preach, no one understands, and God still heals. So, uh, but this word here tra- it also is, can be translated translator. And it's not a coincidence that Jesus is the word. He's translating God's thoughts to man. It's not just what Jesus says. It's everything he did that is a lesson to us. That's why the first chapter of this book of Hebrews says that in times past, God spoke through prophets and his anointed men. But and now he speaks by his son, not just through his son, but by his son. Jesus is the word, and everything he did was God speaking loud and clear. If you've seen the son, you've seen the father. And so Jesus is our mediator. He's our go-between. And then it says this. This is what we want to get to this morning. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, there is a whole lot in that little phrase. It begs the question, why does he use the phrase, the sprinkled blood? Why does he just say, the blood? Why does he qualify it by the sprinkled blood? Why does he say that the blood speaks? What's the reference to it speaks a better word than Abel. What, what did Abel's blood speak that Jesus' blood isn't speaking? And what is Jesus' blood speaking that Abel's blood was not speaking? We need to understand what the blood of Jesus speaks. And it speaks to the Father. Just as God said of Abel that his blood cries out to me from the ground. Jesus' blood cries out to the Father. His blood has a voice and it says something. And when you and I understand what the blood of Jesus says, we can leverage it in our own lives. The fact is that the blood of Jesus has an application towards God, towards the enemy. Scripture says that we overcome him, Satan, By the blood of the Lamb. The blood speaks to God, but it also speaks to the enemy. And the blood also has a message for you and I. There is an application of the blood towards heaven, towards earth, and towards hell. And so often, we as believers understand and measure what it says to God, but we don't know how to apply it to ourselves. And so we have people that are 
legally living within the good of the blood, but psychologically failing to do so. They, they, they live in the legal aspect, but don't enjoy the psychological aspect of the blood. What do I mean by that? I'll explain in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we just pray, God, this morning that your teaching would fall like rain. Lord, I'm asking for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to hover over us. We thank you that you are the spirit that leads us into all truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you do just that this morning. Lord, anoint my mouth to speak, my mind to think, in Jesus' name, and our ears to hear. Amen. All right. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. I, uh, that, that phrase just gripped me this week, the sprinkled blood. We talk a lot of the shedding of blood, but there's a difference between the shedding of blood and the sprinkling of blood. The shedding of blood is a common phrase in Scripture, as is the sprinkling of blood, but it's more a phrase that's utilized in the Old Testament. It is that, it's tra- that, that term is translated in the New Testament several times, but we associate it more with the Old Testament. The shedding of blood is the idea of how the atonement was secured, how our sins were taken care of, both under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. The shedding of blood was how... Uh, matter of fact, Hebrews 9, if you want to you read a book that talks about the blood a lot, it's this book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 9 says, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Why is that? Most of us as believers know that, but we don't understand that. We understand the, the end result, the fact, but we don't, we, we don't really understand why that is. And if we understand why blood needs to be shed, and we can enter into the good of that. We can really live under the liberty that that provides. And so if, we, if we're ignorant, we fail to uh, enjoy all that Jesus provided. So there's the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood was how he secured our salvation. But it's the sprinkling of blood as the manner in which we apply that salvation to ourselves. It's the manner in which we apply the atonement to us. That's why David cried out that God would cleanse him with hyssop. Hyssop was a a type of branch, and they would use it in in the, the sprinkling of blood. It was what they used to put the blood on the doorposts when the 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 death angel came through Israel through Egypt and and God spared the Israelites who put the blood on the doorposts. It was used, hyssop was used to apply it. And so hyssop was the vehicle to apply. The redemption found in the blood. And it was used to sprinkle the blood. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. The the priests, blood was sprinkled upon them to sanctify them and set them apart. Matter of fact, Hebrews 9 also says that. It talks about the sprinkling of blood for the remission of sins. Uh, When Moses presented the law to the children of Israel, he took, he sacrificed the the, the sacrificial animals, and then he put half the the blood in, in some bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the people and on the book of the covenant. And then he took the other half and threw it on the altar, at the base of the altar. All of this had rich symbolism. But it was that sprinkling of blood which sanctified the people and bound them to the covenant that he sprinkled it on. 
If, a, if the priest sinned, there was a different use of the sprinkling of blood. Matter of fact, they would have to go in and they would have to sprinkle the blood at the threshold of the Holy of Holies. Because it had to be re-sanctified. And if they, in, in, in uh, enacting the covenant with the blood once a year, if they got blood on their garment, it had to be washed off inside the holy, holy place. They couldn't take it out. There was, there was a lot of uh, parameters that, that, uh, in how the blood was to be utilized. So we have the shedding of blood is the manner in which our salvation was purchased, but it's the sprinkling of blood is the manner in which we apply it to ourselves. And if we don't understand how to apply it to ourselves, we cannot overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. When you read that passage in the book of Revelation, it said, uh, it's talking about the accuser, Satan, and then it says, and they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. It starts with the blood of the lamb. But you look at all three of these, all three of these things, the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and us loving not our life unto the death. All three of these things were weapons that were used against the enemy. They were used Satan word. Now there is a way in which we use the blood towards God. But there's also a, a, a way in which we use the blood of Jesus towards the enemy to overcome him. How do we do that? We need to understand how to take the hyssop, if you will, and sprinkle the blood and, and apply it to our life to disarm the enemy so that we can enter in. Matter of fact, the word that John had this morning at the end of worship, I believe, is connected to this. I believe there's a lot of men in this room that the enemy uses condemnation to disqualify you from your role as leader in your house. And the reason you're not stepping up is not because you don't want to, not because you're not sincere, it's because you feel condemned and disqualified. And so you abdicate your role out of guilt. And the Lord wants to teach you to use the blood of the Lamb to cleanse your conscience and step back in your role, to strip him of accusation. The blood of Jesus is a weapon by which we rip, strip the enemy of accusation. The word Satan literally means accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us to disqualify us. Most of us, it, our, the, 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 the accusation doesn't so much make us doubt our salvation as much as it does cripple us in, in stepping into our role in our destiny. We can't exercise the leadership that God has called us to. We don't exercise our spiritual gifts because of that intimidation and that condemnation. And so we have to enter by the blood of the Lamb. We have to have that sure foundation. We've got to know where our righteousness resides. So when the enemy attacks us in our personal righteousness and our behavior, we can appeal to the righteousness of Christ and strip him of that accusation and have firm ground to stand on. So before we can understand how to apply the blood or sprinkle the blood, Matter of fact, let me read, read a, a New Testament verse that uses that phrase, the sprinkling of blood. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled 
to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let me read that again. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith that brings, having our hearts sprinkled. In other words, in order for us to come near to God with a, with a sincere heart, in order for us to come boldly before the throne of grace, we have to understand the basis of our approach. If we think we're approaching God on the basis of our own righteousness, our own behavior, our own track record, then on your good days you'll come boldly and on your bad days you won't. And I I would propose to you, God loves you enough to never give you rest in your own righteousness. So about the time you're feeling pretty good about yourself and you think you can enter by your own righteousness, God is going to expose something fresh in your life. Because he is out to get you standing on the ground of Jesus' finished work and not your own works. So much so that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount this principle. Agree with thine enemy as you're on your way to the judge. Agree with your adversary on your way to the judge lest you be found guilty. What does that mean? When you read it at face value, it sounds like you're being drugged into court and you're always guilty. What's the deal with those kind of Christians? We're always getting sued and we're always guilty. What kind of church is that? It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our adversary, the enemy. When we are on our way before the throne of grace, when we are going to what this text we just read calls the judge of all the earth, when we come to the judge of all men and we're entering his presence, it's before God's presence that the enemy condemns us. He's the accuser of the brethren before the throne. It's as we're coming before the throne, he tries to condemn us to get us to back out of God's presence and cut us off from the source of grace that will enable us to live the Christian life. The secret of abiding is understanding the power of access that the blood gives us. You don't hear a lot of writers writing about this principle today. I used to read all the old writers when I first got saved. And you would hear a lot of them talk about this principle of of God taking you to your personal cross and emptying you of yourself. That Jesus died as us, but he also died as our example so that we pick up our own cross. And there is a cross that God applies to our life to expose us to ourself, to bring us to the end of ourself. And that is an important element of Christianity. And if we're not careful, we can short-circuit the work of God because what God is doing is bringing us to the end of ourselves so we really do trust his righteousness and not our own. I've told this story before, but it's been a while. I remember sitting in Teen Challenge. When when I was on staff out at Teen Challenge, we were doing a Bible study one morning with the staff. We would have our Bible study and the students would do their devos and then we'd have chapel together. And so we're, uh, we're talking. And one of the staff members, he was, he was a former pastor. He had come on staff. And he was, he was just telling us, he informed all of us suddenly that I'm the most spiritual man in this ministry. And we were all just shocked at the arrogance. I'm, my jaw hit the t- I couldn't believe the guy was saying that. He actually, and right in front of us, he said, I am, he pretty much said, we all know that I am the most spiritual one of all of us. 
And we're all looking at it thinking, if we uh, had any doubts, you've removed them, you know, that you're not the most spiritual, but just by saying it, because as he's saying that, I'm thinking in my heart of hearts, because I know I am. (laughs) And what freaked me out is I was judging him for thinking that, and all of a sudden I had this moment of self-awareness, and I was terribly embarrassed. I was just... I was just as arrogant as him. I was just a little more savvy about it. I was more deceitful. I didn't let anybody know. It so disturbed me because I didn't know I believed that about myself until this guy said it, and there was this internal argument saying, no, you're not, I am. And then I'm judging, I can't believe he would say it. And then I'd realize, I think that. <laughs> yeah. and, it was, and that was the beginning of a very painful journey of the Lord showing me just how unspiritual I am. I'm serious. It was the Lord used that to show me my self-righteousness. And he loved me enough to begin to go to work to jackhammer up that ground of self-righteousness that I had been standing on. It wasn't a coincidence that 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 period of my life, I lived in condemnation. My walk with God was up and down. I'm not talking morality. I'm not talking my behavior. I'm talking about my access to the Father. I was always feeling like God was disappointed and then I'd do some, you know. It was all this this up and down because I was trying to trust in my own righteousness. And so the Lord lovingly allowed some circumstances to come along to expose what was really in my heart. Till I remember just coming to the end of myself and thinking, man, I need to resign. I don't need to be in ministry. I need to be in Teen Challenge again. But God was trying to reveal to me the righteousness of Christ. And the way we disarm the condemnation, the accusation of the enemy, is by learning to wield the blood of Christ. It's one thing for Jesus' blood to be shed. That's something God took care of. But you have to understand how to have your heart sprinkled with blood. As a priest, you need to apply the blood to the doorposts of your heart, toward the entry places in your life. You need to learn how to utilize the blood of Jesus in your life. Because it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from a guilty conscience. How does that work? Well, there are two forms of guilt that we need to deal with. One is divine and the other is human. And they both must be dealt with. And the blood is the answer for both. Divine guilt is the problem called legal guilt. I was legally guilty before God. I had broken his law. I had had violated his principles, and I was legally guilty. And there was no way for me to not, not, not just go to heaven. There was no way for me to have any relationship with him until that legal guilt was taken care of. And the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, was how God took care of that legal guilt. And most of us, as believers, we understand that at least enough to walk in an assurance that heaven is our eternal home. The problem is we don't understand the other type of guilt, and that is psychological guilt. And there's a lot of people living under psychological guilt. They understand that they're saved and their eternal destination will be heaven, but they don't really live in the good of that on this end, and they live under that psychological guilt, still identifying themselves with their past. 
And the enemy can leverage that condemnation and that guilt, keeps them in hiding in relationships. It, it, it disables them from being able to bring their whole self to a relationship because of the shame they're living in. There's portions of their life they try to bury. The enemy can use past failures, just push on them and causes them to withdraw and keeps them from their destiny. But I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus is just as much the answer to psychological guilt as it is to legal guilt. So how does the blood of Jesus work? Before we can get in, uh, into how to apply it to our heart, we got to understand why did it satisfy God? Why did God require the shedding of blood? We know in Leviticus it says that the life is in the blood. You see, for the priests, it wasn't just any blood that they could sanctify things with. They couldn't just kill any old animal or any old blood and sprinkle it on the people or sprinkle it on the priests and thereby sanctify them and set them apart, make them presentable to God. There was a prescription. A certain type of blood had to be shed. And we know all that was foreshadowing of Jesus, that Jesus' blood was the thing that satisfied the heart of God. But what was unique about Jesus' blood? Was it merely because he was the Son of God? Well, if that's the case, then why, why didn't God just let Jesus be killed as a baby in a manger? Let Herod kill him, and we could have got this thing going quicker, you know? We could have speeded up by 33 years. What's the deal with the blood of Jesus? What made Jesus' blood unique? Well, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and thereby he was not, he, he had a, a human mother, but a divine father, and therefore he was sinless. That he wasn't born in sin. But that, that simply secured his innocence, not his perfection. And there's a difference. Innocence is where he started, but perfection is what your and my, uh, our sin demanded. Full salvation demanded that God, God have a perfect sacrifice. That is why it says in, in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 5 that Jesus was made perfect by the things that he suffered. Jesus wasn't born perfect. Now at first, when I first make that statement, it sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Jesus wasn't born perfect. But the fact is, Scripture is very clear, that Jesus was made perfect by the things he suffered. That's Hebrews 2. Later on in that passage, it says he suffered when he was tempted. You see, the idea was that God made Adam in his image. God's heart was full. He had a dream. He wanted, he wanted many sons. He had his only begotten son, but he wanted many begottens. He wanted, he wanted many children. He, want, he wanted to extend his family, extend the family business, God and sons. I'm going to make a business card. You know, what do you do for a living? God and sons. We're taking over the universe. And so what did God do? He made children in his own image. And the idea was that they would take the mark of God's nature, God's image in their nature, and through making right choices, through their obedience, they would develop in character so that they looked like the Father. It wasn't good enough for them to merely have the nature of the Father. God breathed into them, literally in Genesis it says in the Hebrew, the breath of lives, plural. 
There was the physical life and there was the spiritual life that was breathed into them. And in the breath of lives, it, they had the nature, but they needed the character. Nature, the nature of God within them by creation made them the children of God, but God wanted full-grown daughters and sons. He wanted them to go from innocence to perfection. Well, how did that happen? That they would be confronted with choices. And as they make the right decision, then that would develop their character and they would grow up into him who is the head. It's the same way you and I are made perfect. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2 it says, it was fitting that God, comma, for whom and through whom how everything is made, made Jesus perfect through suffering. Why does it say it was fitting that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering? It's fitting because that's how you and I are going to be made perfect. I know, that's not a hallelujah point, is it? <laughs> the way that you grow it says later on in that passage, Jesus suffered as he was tempted. So what it's saying is that God confronts your and my will with a choice, and it's a temptation. Do I take God's way, which seems harder, or do I take the enemy's way, which seems easier? I want it, I want it and they both promise the same destination. We've talked about how Jesus, when he was tempted by the enemy, he came to Jesus and he said, if you bow before me and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And in so doing, he was literally prophesying Jesus' future. But he was promising him destiny wrapped in a shortcut. And that is what temptation is. The enemy promising you the very thing that God has for you, that's why it is tempting, because you were made for this. But he wraps it in a shortcut and entices you, saying, I can give it to you an easier route, and it will never satisfy, it'll never deliver. But there's always that enticement, that struggle. But when we make the right choice and we resist the shortcut, we embrace the pain, and we walk in God's way, it causes us to grow. No pain, no gain. We grow up into him. We become men and women of character. And thereby, we manifest the character of who God really is. Made in his image, we begin to manifest that image. The fact is, all mankind is made in God's image. But not all of them manifest that. And to the degree that we cooperate with what God is doing in us is to the degree that we can emanate, we can manifest his image. So it's a process, just like it was with Jesus. That's why it was fitting that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering because that's how he's going to do it with you and I. So what was God doing? He was taking the image that he stamped upon Christ's nature, and he was calling that forth. And through decisions, Jesus was making the right decisions. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He was going from innocence to perfection, to completion. God was growing him up until finally the last temptation for Jesus was that he was obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. Hebrews 5 says he was made perfect, or he, was, he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and then once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Let me say it again. He learned obedience by the things he suffered, 
and once made perfect, he then became the source of eternal salvation. Let's reverse engineer that. It's saying the only way he could save us is he had to be made perfect. It was only then that he could be the source of eternal salvation. How was that going to happen? He had to learn obedience. For years I would read that and think, what in the world does that mean? How could the, the, the sinless son of God have to learn obedience? Doesn't mean he was ever disobedient, but he had to learn it. And God, being a good father, fathered his son and brought him along and developed the nature within him. And only once made perfect could he then become the source of eternal salvation. What is the writer telling us? That it wasn't good enough for Jesus to be innocent. He had to be perfect. What God was looking for is a righteous man who had fulfilled every requirement of the Father. That's why Jesus, at, the, at his baptism, he saw his cousin, John the Southern Baptist. He said, hey, would you baptize me? And John said, oh, no, I, I can't do that. You're, you know, I'm not worthy. I, I, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. And Jesus said, I must, the King James Version says it very poetically, I must needs fulfill all of righteousness. I got to do this because this is part of fulfilling righteousness, which, by the way, is a good advertisement for water baptism. Okay? If Jesus needed it, so do you and I. But he was saying that I've got to fulfill all of righteousness. Why? Because it was important that Jesus fulfilled every righteous requirement and fulfilled every dream within the heart of the Father that he had. I mean, I want us to catch this, that when God made Adam and Eve, he had a dream of a, this massive family and family reunions and Thanksgiving around the table. God, the essence of who God is, is he is a papa. He is a father who wants generations of sons and daughters. God is an empowering father who wants to share the family business, will rule and reign with him. And all of that was in God's pregnant heart when he formed Adam out of the dirt of the ground. But Adam being formed in the garden was the beginning and not the end. God put the potential of his image in him so that it could be brought forth through situations so that Adam could be full-grown, mature son. And people could say, well, what's God like? Well, just look at his son, like father, like son. Look at him just like his dad. That was God's desire. And so when Jesus comes, when he says, I must fulfill all of righteousness, that's not a little thing. He's not saying, yeah, I need to be water baptized. Check that off the list. No, what he was doing is he was leaning into the Father's heart and saying, I want to fulfill every dream that God has. Every desire God has for man, I want to fulfill it because once God has a man who has fulfilled every righteous requirement, now God has the vehicle through which he can begin to win more sons and daughters. He can begin to win other sons and daughters through his blood. What do I mean by that? I'll tell you in a moment. i got to camp out on this thing, this dream thing, okay? I'm telling you, God had a dream and he wrapped it in you. There is, when God dreamt you up, there's, his heart is full when he looks at you. 
There is a unique expression he wanted to make in human history, and you're the only one that can do it. That's why it's such a tragedy, and that's why the enemy is so, so intent on causing shame, because we leave our little spot, our little imprint unoccupied while we stand back here in shame. And we don't occupy our space. We don't become who we're called to be. We don't do what we're called to do because we feel disqualified. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus paid the price to strip you of that that shame and wash you and qualify you and let you retake your position and become all that God ever dreamed for you to be. God has a dream and he wrapped it in you. And he is longing to see the full expression of that in the earth, in this generation. But the blood of Jesus is a crucial component because you've got to have a clean conscience. You've got to realize that you are are accepted by the Father. You're accepted in the beloved in order for you to occupy your space. And when we don't, what we do is we become a cheap counterfeit of somebody else's space. We reject who God made us to be because we're ashamed of it. And so we become this cheap counterfeit of everybody else. And people and God are robbed of what he put in you. So this whole thing of Jesus fulfilling all of righteousness, what God needed was a life that fulfilled all of righteousness. Why? Because once made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation. What God was looking for is a righteous life that had fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. That every requirement within the heart of God for a man to come into his presence was met in Jesus. There's only been one man in all of history that could boldly walk into God's presence based on his own righteous behavior. He earned the right to approach the throne of God, and that was Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, I believe that's what he was saying. God's righteous requirements for a human life was now satisfied, and he could give up the ghost. He can say, Father, I now present you with what you've longed for. A man who has fulfilled every righteous requirement and became all you dreamt for him to be. And then he gave up the ghost. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus is the high priest. We know he's the lamb. His cousin John the Baptist, at his baptism, declared him such. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he was the lamb, the righteous lamb, the perfect lamb, whose blood had to be shed to, to purchase our salvation. But he was also the priest who would take that blood and present it in the holiest, holy of holies before the throne of God. Now Hebrews tells us that the, the, the three-tiered temple in Jerusalem was simply a... A, uh, a, a picture of what that God had given them this earthly temp or this heavenly template for an earthly uh, structure, but the real one was in heaven. And so the Holy of Holies represented the throne room of God. And so Jesus, upon his death, you remember when, when he, at his resurrection and Mary came to touch him, he said, Don't touch me. He said, You can't touch me yet. I've not yet gone to the Father, which 
Man. Whew. I want you to think about that. All of human history would hinge on Jesus' ability as a high priest to present the blood to the Father and satisfy his desire. And Jesus pauses to talk to Mary, this worshiper. That just, that just touches my heart. He's on his way. He says, just, but uh, don't touch me. I, I just wanted to drop by and let you know I'm alive. Hebrews 9 says that he took this bowl of blood and he presented it to the Father. He went boldly before the throne and he presented and satisfied the heart of God with the bowl of blood. What did that blood represent? What was in that blood? I'm waiting for an answer. What, What was in the blood? The life is in the blood. And what life was in that blood? Jesus' life. And what did Jesus' life do? Jesus' life fulfilled all of righteousness, satisfied every righteous requirement that God had for man. Yes, he satisfied. So when God took that blood, he, what he was doing is he was saying, now every demand I ever had for a man has been satisfied. And he took the blood and the veil was rent and we can come boldly before the throne of grace. He fulfilled all of righteousness. Now, what does that have to do with you and I? It's when we understand that. It's when we believe that. It's when we understand. I come before the throne of grace, not on my own righteousness, not on my own effort. My my own effort. I have good days and bad days, unfortunately. There are some days where I, I, I liked how John said it, but I don't like when I do it. Bad dad. The bad dad days. But the fact is, That's who I am. But there's the blood of Jesus I approach, not based on my ability to live it out. I I approach God based on Jesus' ability to satisfy the heart of God. That's why we sing the song, We Enter by the Blood of the Lamb. Back in the 80s, there was a whole bunch of songs that came out about the blood of the Lamb and entering by the blood. And you know what? They were all written for me. I mean, God let you, could let you in on it, too. I hope they ministered to you. But I tell you, I so needed that at that time. I remember when I first got into full-time ministry, I was working out at Teen Challenge, and I was in the thick of this thing of just struggling with my own self-righteousness and always feeling condemned. And I felt like I needed to fast more, and I needed to be in the Word more, and I needed to pray more. And I felt like I could never do enough because God was, I had this idea of God requiring more and more and more. I knew I was going to heaven, but I didn't think I could ever please him on earth. And I was just struggling, living under this condemnation. And the fact is, the enemy was leveraging my own sincerity against me. Because if I wasn't sincere, it wouldn't have mattered. Condemnation only works on sincere people, you know that? If you struggle with condemnation, it's because of two things. Number one, you don't understand the gospel enough yet. And number two, you're very sincere about your relationship with God. Either one of those, you're not going to struggle with condemnation. You cannot understand the gospel and be failing miserably, but if you're not sincere, you don't care, just as long as you appear good to other people. Or you can be very sincere, but if you understand the gospel, you won't live in condemnation. The enemy leverages our sincerity against us. 
And so we need to learn to utilize the blood of Christ. Back in that, that time, I was, we, we'd gone over as Teen Challenge. We were attending Berean Assembly of God. And I remember it was a Sunday night. I don't know what I was going through. One thing I love about the journey with Jesus is I always remembered the lessons I learned, but I never understood the trials that precipitated them. I went through some trial. God showed me something. I don't remember what I went through, but I remember what he showed me. We're in worship one night, and I was struggling. I just felt like, man, God's disappointed with me all the time. It was, I had this twisted theology of God as a hard taskmaster. And as we were in worship, all of a sudden I went into this vision and I saw this massive room. I was outside of it and I could see it was like a gymnasium. It was huge and it was this polished floor. And I knew intuitively in my spirit, that's the throne room. And I so wanted to go in. And I looked down and on the threshold was all this blood. And the Lord simply said to me, The only way to get in is through the blood. We've got to enter by the blood of the Lamb. The only rest for your weary soul is entering into God's presence based on Jesus' righteousness. You enter by the blood of the Lamb. And I began to do these mental gymnastics when I would worship, when I would pray, because I would come before the throne of grace and feel so condemned, feeling like I'm not good enough, I haven't done enough, and the enemy would remind me, remember what you thought about that person, and remember what you did here? And I would, as I'm on my way to the judge, I would be feeling condemned, so I didn't want to go into the presence of the judge. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, agree with your adversary quickly. And what I needed to do is say, you know what, that's true. I I am not good enough to enter God's presence on my own. No argument here. But that is not the basis of my entrance. I don't enter by the righteousness of Dave Olson, by whether I had a good day or a bad day or a good week or a bad week or a good month or a bad month. I enter by the blood of the Lamb. And this life, I come before God with the one thing He requires, and that is a righteous life. And this blood contains the life of Jesus that fulfilled every righteous requirement that God ever made of man. And I would picture myself coming before the throne of grace, and I would feel God just say, come in. I would hand Him the blood, and He would say, come in now. I'm sure that all wasn't happening, but it helped me. It was these mental gymnastics I was going through to deal with the psychological guilt, to overcome my own wrong theology that I enter by the blood of the Lamb. When we understand that, when we understand how the blood speaks to the Father, then we can use it to speak to the devil. When he comes to your life and begins to condemn you, you can agree with him, hey, you know what? I'm not and never will be perfect, but I've got a life that is perfect, and it's in this bowl of blood, and that blood gives me access to the Father, and you can't keep me out based on my behavior because I don't enter by my behavior. I enter by the behavior of one that fulfilled all of righteousness. And so it's how we apply it to our life. It's how we put it on our heart to cleanse ourselves of a guilty conscience. But you can't cleanse yourself of a guilty conscience until you understand how the blood satisfies the Father. We come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks a better word than Abel. We enter by the blood, that sprinkled blood, which sanctifies and consecrates. And when you're struggling with your own track record, and when you're struggling and the enemy tries to bring up your past, you need to learn to enter by the sprinkled blood. Remind yourself, I'm telling you, Jesus' blood satisfied God's requirements on your behalf. And I'm telling you, your behavior will never fully come up to the standard God desires until your believing comes up to the standard of Jesus' righteousness. When you place your faith in Jesus' righteousness, you know you're secure. And it's then that God can begin to bring your behavior into alignment. But if you're, if you're thinking, I'll behave and then I'll belong, you'll never get in. But when you understand, I believe, therefore I belong, your behavior will follow. Amen? All right, let's stand. Hallelujah. Just going to ask you to lift your hands to the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you endured suffering on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you that you resisted every temptation to take the shortcut. Lord, we thank you that your final act of obedience was to hang on a cross when you could have easily called down 10,000 angels to rescue you, but you endured the cross, scorning its shame so that we could enter boldly before the throne of grace. Now, Lord, I'm asking, God, that you'd give us a revelation that we would not leave this valuable gift laying on the table. Lord, that we would utilize it. Lord, you would teach us to use the blood to cleanse our conscience. I thank you for it. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.